Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 29th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This will be the 121st presentation in our commentaries on the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. And, at least for now, it shall be the final segment of the series. Here we conclude an endeavor which began on March 28, 2014, with our first presentation on the Epistle to the Romans. Of course, we did a lot of other things in between. We did many commentaries on the books of the Minor Prophets and things like that. So, this hasn't taken nearly four years by itself. But 121 weeks spread out over almost four years is quite long enough. We praise Christ for having had the opportunity to do this. And we pray that all of those unrighteous skeptics of Paul's epistles take the time to read or listen to this work. As we have said in many times in the past, Paul's epistles were the glue by which the message of reconciliation in the gospel of Christ was adhered to the lost sheep of the houses of Judah and Israel, the anciently scattered tribes who are those for whom Christ had come. The importance of this within the greater history of our Adamic race cannot be overlooked. In the history of Israel, Paul was every bit as important as any of the ancient prophets, for it is he who truly understood and taught the relevance of the prophecies and histories of the children of Israel in the light of the gospel of Christ. Even if the world has been blind to the truth of this message for at least the last 1800 years. In the formative years of the Roman Church, imperialism prevailed over identity. But as we have explained elsewhere, and in diverse ways, while this is the last epistle in our presentation, it is not the last of Paul's surviving epistles in the order of their writing. We have not presented these epistles in the order in which they were written. Rather, we adhered to the order found in the King James Version of the Bible with a couple of exceptions. We moved Hebrews to precede the pastoral epistles as we believe that it belongs with the nine epistles which Paul had written to other Christian assemblies. We also moved Philemon and presented it along with Colossians. Since Philemon was a Colossian, and Paul wrote to him individually concerning his slave Epaphras at the same time that he wrote his letter to the Colossians. If we had presented these epistles in chronological order, and the reasons for our rehashing this will come to light soon, we would have started with those written to the Thessalonians and then presented Galatians, 1 Corinthians, Titus, 1 Timothy, 2 Corinthians, and Romans in that order. 
These are all of Paul's surviving epistles which were written while he was free. And we also saw evidence that a now missing letter to the Corinthians was also written which preceded the two which we have. And that there must have been an earlier letter to the, Gra- to the Galatians than the one which we now have which is also missing. Next, the epistle to the Hebrews was written after Paul was arrested and before he was sent to Rome. Then from Rome he wrote Ephesians and then this epistle, Second Timothy, where he asked Timothy to join him. After Timothy obeyed and came to Paul, the epistles to the Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon were written. We have also seen that when Colossians was written, there was a now missing epistle to the nearby Laodiceans, which was sent along with it. But Philemon was probably the last of Paul's surviving epistles. I really believe he wrote many more besides these, which are missing, which never survived the early Christian persecutions. So while the second epistle to Timothy was not actually the last of Paul's epistles, it is nevertheless fitting to be presented as the last, as Paul uses it as a sort of testament to Timothy and briefly describes the standing or character of many of the men with whom he had been associated. Ostensibly, so that his younger fellow worker would be able to act accordingly if perhaps he encountered any of them in the future. With this, and with Paul's consistent association of Timothy with his ministry whenever he writes letters while the two are together, we can confidently ascertain that Timothy was the designated heir to Paul's ministry. Paul writes this letter as he has already defended the Christian faith before the emperor and as he awaits his own possible condemnation in Rome. So Paul certainly imagined that this epistle may indeed be his last. Now, after a brief discussion of what we had seen in chapter 3 of the epistle, we shall present its final chapter. In our last presentation of the second epistle to Timothy, we saw the apostle issue a general warning that in future days men will be narcissistic, covetous, arrogant, blasphemous braggarts, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unhallowed, unaffectionate, implacable, slanderous, intemperate, untamed without love of goodness, reckless, demented traitors, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of Yahweh. After this warning, Paul began to commend and to encourage Timothy. He continues that commendation here and summarily repeats this warning from a different perspective. But before proceeding, we must say that, stating this warning, Paul was not describing different sorts of sinners 
as he had in times past warned against fornicators or idolaters or adulterers, etc. in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or against fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, as he did in Colossians chapter 3. This warning here is different. Here Paul describes men who start off being narcissistic and covetous. And those sins lead them into all of these other sins where those same men become, because of their narcissism, because of their coveting. They become arrogant, blasphemous braggarts. They become ungrateful for the things which Yahweh has provided them. They become unaffectionate, disaffected from their brethren and their loved ones. They become implacable and slanderous, and among other things, ultimately they become reckless, demented traitors, biting the hand that fed them, and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. All of this is the fruit of narcissism, or the love of oneself. When a man loves himself, he turns his attention to himself so that he may add things to himself. If a man loved his brethren, he would turn his attention to his community. He would ask his God what he could do for his community. Seeking the kingdom of heaven. And Yahweh would add to him the things that he needs. But a man who loves himself, seeking to add things to himself, he becomes a lover of flesh, engaging in vanities, such as bodybuilding. Or if he does not do that, by adorning himself with expensive clothing and jewels, and, and jewels, I'm sorry, and accessories, like Birkenstocks. Even when one cannot afford gold, covering oneself with tattoos can be an expression of narcissism, longing to draw attention to one's own person, rather than spending one's time and money edifying the community of the people of Christ. Not all narcissists can afford gold, and not all have tattoos. And we cannot say that anyone who has either of these things, or anyone who has nice clothing, or wears Birkenstocks, or exercises lifting weights, is necessarily a narcissist. But men who are consumed with themselves indulge in one or more of these things, and the next step is to slide down the slippery path into covetousness which is the undue desire of material things for oneself, building one's own nest instead of one's kindred people, instead of one's community. So as Paul also attests here, narcissistic men become braggarts, always attracting attention to themselves. They want to be legends. They also exhibit ingratitude, and they become traitors, even biting the hands that feed them, because they seek to vaunt themselves 
over their own brethren. But we don't always recognize a narcissist when we first encounter one. And when someone who possesses narcissistic habits or tendencies professes the gospel of Christ, we must tolerate them to a degree where it may take months or years for their true intentions to become manifest. So when we are betrayed by such a man, the warnings of the apostle are all the more pronounced that perhaps we should have been given we should have given them more careful consideration in the first place. Of course I say these things because I myself have recently been betrayed by such a man. And there is another such betrayal now transpiring because another good friend has been taken away by him into covetousness. So it just so happens that at the same time that we are also here presenting this portion of Paul's epistles where Paul happened to warn of, to warn of these things and we have an occasion to discuss them at length. When a man succumbs to self-indulgence and narcissism he is ultimately going to betray his own community becoming one of those reckless demented traitors of which Paul speaks. The Christian walk should should be one of self-denial and not of self-indulgence. The last thing you should want to be is a legend. You should deny ourselves. We deny ourselves for the benefit of our people and seek to serve them rather than to serve ourselves. This is what Christ had told us in the Gospel when he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Those who seek to build themselves up, who covet wealth or riches or attention for themselves, they want to be their own gods, their own saviors. And in essence, they deny Yahshua Christ, who is our only God and Savior. With this, we shall commence with 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul is continuing an exhortation for Timothy that had begun in chapter 3. In the last verses of that chapter, Paul wrote that all writing inspired of God is also beneficial for teaching, for evidence, for correction, for education which is in righteousness, that the man of Yahweh would be perfect, having prepared himself for all good works. So now he continues and says, I affirm before Yahweh, even Christ Yahshua, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and his manifestation and his kingdom. Now, before we continue with Paul's affirmation, we will pause to assert that the Christian should prepare himself for all good works through the study of the scriptures. However, knowing the scriptures alone is not a good work in and of itself. But the knowledge only prepares one to do good works. That's what Paul explains here. So if one believes the scriptures, he will indeed apply their teachings in his daily life. And he will act on the basis of those teachings. 
And therefore, throughout the course of his daily life, he will choose activities, not like bodybuilding, he will choose activities in which to engage that are oriented towards seeking the kingdom of God. Doing that, he will be eager to perform good works for his kindred in preparation for that kingdom. But here we shall pause to address yet another heresy which the followers of Neville Goddard, Napoleon Hill, and the Kabbalah are trying to inject into Christian identity. This idea that the kingdom of heaven is within us, or, as they explain that concept, that God is a mere vibrational energy that exists in everything, and that somehow we can harness that energy for our own use, to fulfill our own desires, because that vibrational energy is the God within us, or, as some heretical fools even ventured to call it, the Christ within us. If any of this were true, why is Paul of Tarsus telling his readers to turn outwardly, to do good works, and to await the manifestation of Christ and his kingdom in our physical world? Not in some ether, not in our minds, in our physical world. Christ did not tell his adversaries that the kingdom of heaven is within them. It sure as hell wasn't within them. Rather, Christ told them that the kingdom of heaven is among them. Because the people of God here on earth at any given time do represent the kingdom of God. And when they all do good works for one another and cleave to one another, the kingdom of God becomes manifest, the light shining on the hill. But even does that not mean that Israel is restored? In that regard, the apostles asked, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 1, Lord, speaking to Christ, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? So we must wonder, is this a question that they would ask if Christ ever taught them to feel the kingdom within themselves as some sort of happy-feeling vibrational energy? He may as well have told them to drop some acid or to smoke some mushrooms. But Jesus was not a counterculture hippie or a New Ager or even a Kabbalistic alchemist. Did Christ ever attempt to explain to his disciples any sort of so-called string theory or some obscure concept from metaphysics or so-called theoretical physics? No, but rather he told them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. So instead, he only told them that their mission was to spread his gospel. And after he departed from them, the angels of Yahweh told them that this same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, 
shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. There is no Kabbalistic numbers crunching that will ever change that. This Christ of Acts chapter 1 is the same Yahshua Christ whom Paul instructed his Christian readers to await, not some happy, feel-good vibration inside, but a real and physical entity who is coming to judge the quick and the dead, to execute vengeance upon his enemies, and to establish his kingdom here on earth in the final restoration of the children of Israel. This is the Christ of the revelation of John, but it is not the Christ of the New Age Kabbalah babblers. If Christ is in us, if God is in us, it is only because we are his children and we have sought to conform ourselves to him through the keeping of his law, as he told us. In John chapter 14, If a man loves me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. But even that internal dwelling of Christ in us is only in preparation for the coming of his kingdom, and it is not the kingdom itself. The truth of that is evident in the book of Acts from chapter 2, as the apostles had received the Holy Spirit, which is precisely why we have such a witness. The apostles certainly did have the indwelling of Christ in the Holy Spirit, but they were nevertheless fallible men who were persecuted on his behalf and they never considered for themselves to be gods that they may create their own reality. The Kabbalah must be uprooted from Christian identity as our identity message is indeed the Elijah ministry and in that there is no room for Neville Goddard Napoleon Hill, Gnosticism, Theosophy, I am cults, Neoplatonism, or Kabbalah. Now, I have not said it earlier, but my listeners must know, and these people will not repent, so I will say it now. Our former friend, Brother Ryan Brennan, has attempted to introduce teachings from the Kabbalah into our Christian identity gospel and we rebuke him for it. Sadly, another former friend, whom we shall not yet name, but who we shall name soon if he doesn't repent, is following him. And nevertheless, we still pray that he will repent. He is confusing the gospel of Goddard for faith and awaiting his own life-changing miracle based on a sanitized version of Ryan's recently adopted teachings, which is fully evident in the content of his most recent two sermons. Some of my listeners will know who I'm talking about. I exhort him to repent, and quickly. Now we shall proceed with Paul's affirmation. In verse 2 of 2 Timothy, two, Second Timothy, let me say it the Judeo-Christian way, I'm sorry. Second Timothy, chapter 4. You must proclaim the word. You must stand ready, 
opportunely and inopportunely. In other words, you must be ready to answer with scripture, which takes much practice, whether or not it's convenient for you at the time, whether or not you've studied any particular topic in preparation. You must proclaim the word. You must stand ready opportunely and inopportunely. You must bring convincing proof. You must censure. You must exhort with all forbearance and instruction. Censuring those narcissistic and covetous men of whom Paul speaks is an important part of our Christian obligation. When we fail to censure them, we give them license to carry on their deception. This also reveals an important aspect by which to measure our acceptance of the gospel of Christ. When men accept the gospel, they must accept the teachings of Christ, which insist that if we are to follow him, we must deny ourselves and dedicate our lives to our people. If we do not do so, then we are not really following him. If we refuse to dedicate ourselves to our people, it can only be that we are lovers of ourselves and not of the body of Christ. We cannot have it both ways. Evidently, Paul foresaw a time of great need for such censuring, where he next says in verse 3, For there will be a time when they will not maintain sound doctrine, but in accordance with their own lusts, they will amass teachers for themselves, tickling the ear. Joel Osteen, Benny Hinn, John Hagee, there's probably a whole list of those clowns, right? While individual teachers may amass many students, just as he had warned in a previous chapter, here Paul is also speaking of the entire future body of Christians, and the teachers which they would amass for themselves, who would teach them lies according to their own desires. Narcissists, wrapped up in themselves, teach people that they can also be gods, and that their imaginations can create their own realities, so that they can be absorbed with enriching their own lives. But they have departed from that self-denial which is necessary to master in order to serve the gospel and body of Christ. Covetous people seek out teachers who give approbation to and legitimize their covetousness. And covetous so-called pastors teach people how to fulfill their own covetousness. So today we have the so-called name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel. Or the more sublime deception that teaches men that they could use their imaginations to create the objects of their own desires. Because they are gods. And all they have to do is learn to exploit the vibrations. Narcissistic men deceive themselves in the belief that they are gods. When Yahshua Christ, our God, challenges us, 
where he inquires, which of you, by taking thought or imagination, can add one cubit to his stature? We are not gods of creation. We are mere men formed by our Maker. We must flee our youthful lusts, since it is clearly apparent that not all vibrations are actually good vibrations. In his epistle to the Philippians, which was written only a short time after this epistle, Paul, along with Timothy, wrote, Brethren, be ye followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, not within ourselves, not by feeling our good vibrations. Our conversation is in heaven, from whence we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is even able to subdue all things unto himself. We do not find our Savior in heaven, and we do not find our salvation from within ourselves, but rather we look for Yahshua Christ our Savior to come from heaven. We do not exploit some happy-feeling vibrations in our own vile mortal bodies, but rather we anticipate the day when this mortality can put on immortality in the manner in which Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At that time, when this vile body is changed, we don't look to be gods, but rather we look to conform ourselves to God and to make ourselves subject to Him. But Paul warns that people shall instead love the lies. So he says in verse 4, And indeed they will turn the ear away from the truth, and they will be turned to myths. These Kabbalistic teachings can be traced back at least as far as Neoplatonism and Jewish Gnosticism, which also sought to reconcile the elements of pagan Greek philosophy with Scripture and which are among the Jewish fables of which Paul had warned Titus, where he said, speaking of the Cretans, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true, wherefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Today's Kabbalists, posing as Christian pastors and teachers, have given heed to those Jewish fables and have done that same thing once again which the Cretans had done long ago.
Now Paul offers another exhortation. But you be sober in all, speaking to Timothy himself, of course. You must suffer evil. You must do the work of a preacher of the good message, or the gospel. You must fully accomplish your ministry. The Codex Sinaiticus wants the phrase, you must suffer evil. But following that phrase, the Codex Alexandrinus interpolates the words as a good soldier of Christ Yahshua, for which we may compare the text of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. The man true to the gospel of Christ must stand for the truth of the gospel as far as the moment of his death. Paul is about to explain that he accomplished that same thing, as he thought that he was also about to die. So here he is encouraging Timothy to that same undertaking. Nothing should stand between a Christian and the truths of Scripture. When we win friends with censure and exhortation, we win friends who love Christ even as we do. The friends that we think we have, that we gained by compromise, or the friends who turn from the gospel, in the end, they will turn on us as traitors, just as they did to Paul of Tarsus. The Christian identity Kabbalists and their followers now profess a so-called law of attraction, which is not really a law at all, whereby they profess that those who have negative thoughts will attract negative circumstances, and those who only think positively will attract positive circumstances. This so-called law is entirely detached from reality, and especially from Christian reality. As we stated in different words in our last segment of this presentation, last week when we covered chapter 3 of this epistle, positive Christianity is hostile to the world. So positive thoughts to a Christian are, relatively speaking, negative thoughts to those who are worldly. And we see that what qualifies as positive or negative thinking is relative to whomever is hearing the particular idea or concept which a thought expresses. For example, the words, Thou shalt not commit adultery, are pleasing to a man who loves his wife but they are odious to a fornicator who chases after the wives of other men. So to the Christian, thou shalt not commit adultery is a positive thought. It expresses positive things. But to the satanic, paganistic, Kabbalist, thou shalt not commit adultery would be a curse. Paul certainly seemed to have been thinking positively as he spread the gospel of Christ, since it 
certainly is the message of redemption and salvation for the children of Israel. But he was nevertheless stoned and left for dead in Lycaonia, and elsewhere he asserted that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Likewise, he confronted many other dangers, things which are not even recorded in the book of Acts, as he attested in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he said of the Jews, Five times I received forty stripes save one, meaning thirty-nine whips with a lash, or lashes with a whip. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, who were probably also followers of Neville Goddard, in perils and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. Paul didn't attract those things with his thoughts. Paul's thoughts were happy thoughts, positive thoughts about spreading the gospel of Christ to the people who were the subjects of that gospel. But according to the teachers of Kabbalah identity, Paul only had to imagine material wealth, and he would have had it. Why struggle? Just hire an, an army of men to spread the gospel before you. Paul only could have imagined a mansion on Crete, or in Macedonia, or in the Peloponnese, and it would have been miraculously granted to him. If he only thought positive thoughts, he would never have been persecuted, because their so-called law of attraction would have precluded it. That's all bullshit. In truth, someone is lying, and it is not the apostles. As Paul said to Timothy here, you must suffer evil because all of those who endeavor by the word of Yahweh to do good in the world will certainly be confronted with evil. As Christ himself said in Matthew chapter 5 or in Luke chapter 6, which is my preferred version and which I shall quote here from Luke 6.22, Blessed are you when men shall hate you and when they shall separate you from their company and shall reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Then Christ said in Matthew chapter 10 to his disciples and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Then again Christ said in John chapter 15 in verse 20 Remember the word that I said unto you. The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also keep yours. 
Now the scripture says that we are all gods. We may be gods, but we are not God, and we shall die like men. If we seek to do the will of our master, then we can expect to be persecuted in the world, thinking that we can imagine ourselves into worldly blessings. We are only deceiving ourselves into thinking that we can be as God, and even better than our master. Now Paul continues on a solemn note where he accepts his present circumstances. And he says, For I am already offered, and the time of my departure approaches. Having struggled the good struggle, I finished the race, I kept the faith. We learn later in this chapter, in verse 16, that Paul had already defended his Christian profession before Nero Caesar. Now here it is evident that Paul expected to be executed in a short time. So he even speaks of his ministry as if it had been completed. But if we examine his epistles in the order in which they were written, we shall realize that when Timothy comes to Paul in Rome, that evidently his spirits are uplifted, and once again he begins to imagine that he may be released. And we will elucidate that shortly. These same fools who are introducing the Kabbalah into Christian identity also claim that Paul wanted to be a martyr. And by that they attempt to justify their so-called law of attraction, which is really a law of bullshit. They claim that Paul attracted persecution because he wanted to be a martyr. So they might believe that Paul wanted to die in Laodicea, as it is described, or Laodicea, if you want me to pronounce it the Judeo-Christian name. That Paul wanted to die in Laodicea, as it is described in Acts chapter 14. That he was stoned there and left for dead. But that event occurred long before there was ever any fulfillment to Paul's ordained mission. The truth is that Paul did not even think on the same terms as the modern-day narcissists who would rather teach the perversions of Neville Goddard than teach the gospel of Christ. In truth, as soon as Paul was arrested, as he wrote his epistle to the Hebrews. He anticipated being set free. So he wrote to them in chapter 13, in verse 23. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he come shortly, I will see you. But Paul was never released, and he was ultimately sent to Rome instead. Now, there are reasons why we have to rehash this. In our rather concise article on the ordering and chronology of the epistles of Paul, which was written shortly after our commentary on the book of Acts, we said the following in part. There were two letters written from Rome before Timothy was, in Paul, was with Paul 
Ephesians was written from Rome, which is evident in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where Paul explained that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And we see that Paul is a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians. That's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. And that Tychicus had brought that letter to Ephesus. That's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. And he did that before Paul wrote Second Timothy, which is here in this chapter, in verse 12. And we said that perhaps the full armor of Yahweh prayer at the end of that epistle reveals that Paul had not yet defended himself before Caesar, something there was no mention of in the epistle, but that he was about to do so, which he mentions later in this epistle in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. So we establish that Ephesians was written while Paul was a prisoner in Rome, and that Ephesians was written before Second Timothy was written. And then we said that Second Timothy was written from Rome after Paul had already offered his first defense of Christianity, which we see here in verse 16. This agrees with his statement that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus, ostensibly with the epistle to the Ephesians in hand. Now this certainly seems to be the case. However, it cannot be explained why Aristarchus was not mentioned, where Paul said in chapter 4 of Second Timothy that only Luke is with me. And it must also be supposed that Damas had returned to Rome after Paul told Timothy that Damas had forsaken him, since Damas is again with Paul when Colossians is written later on, and we will get to that. In Second Timothy, here in this chapter, in verses 9, 11, and 13, Paul asks Timothy to come to Rome and to bring Mark with him. In the other surviving epistles, which Paul later wrote from Rome, it is evident that Timothy indeed complied. And then we went on to write, that there were three letters written from Rome while Timothy was with Paul. So in other words, Paul wrote Ephesians, and then he wrote Second Timothy, asking Timothy to come to him. And then after Timothy arrives in Rome with Paul, Paul and Timothy together write three more letters. They actually wrote at least four. And those letters are Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. But the fourth letter to the Laodiceans did not survive. We don't have it. There were three letters written from Rome while Timothy was with Paul. Philippians was written from Rome while Paul was with Timothy, as he had mentioned his first defense of Christianity in Second Timothy. He did likewise in Philippians chapter 1, after Timothy had come to Rome to be with him, which we see in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 and 7. Colossians was written while Timothy was with Paul, which we tell from the very first verse of the epistle. And it was written from Rome while Paul was a prisoner, and Aristarchus was still a prisoner along with him, 
which we see in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. Tychicus had gone to Ephesus delivering that epistle. Then Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus. However, in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, we can see that Tychicus also delivered the epistle to Colossae, which Paul wrote when he was with Timothy. So Tychicus must have returned to Rome after he delivered the epistle to the Ephesians and was there with Paul again while Timothy was there so that he could deliver the epistle to the Colossians. As we have demonstrated, the final three of his surviving epistles which Paul wrote were all written after Timothy had joined him in Rome which he requested of him in this epistle. That was the purpose, or one of the purposes, of this epistle. One thing we neglected to mention explicitly in that article, on the ordering and chronology of Paul's epistles, is that where Mark is mentioned in Colossians and Philemon as being with Paul and Timothy, this is a proof that Mark came to Rome with Timothy as Paul requested in this epistle, in this chapter. And that also helps to establish that our ordering of these epistles is correct. But more importantly, to our immediate context here in verses 6 and 7 of this chapter, and I'm sorry if this is windy, but it has to be a complete exposition. So we have to recount the order in which the epistles were written in order to understand what I'm about to say. There are two places in the later epistles where Paul had expressed the hope that he may be released rather than being executed. So we had to explain the order of the epistles here once again in order to elucidate this fact. Paul is saying here that he, he, he that the time of his departure approaches that he was already offered. In other words, he expects to be executed. But in two places, in epistles written after this one, Paul expresses the hope that he's going to be released. And those places are in Philemon and in Philippians. And we have just shown that both of those epistles were written after this epistle was written. In what we believe was the very last of his surviving epistles, Paul wrote in his salutation to Philemon in verse 22, now at once also prepare for me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I am released as a favor to you. So of course Paul was never released, but he clearly hoped that he would be released. He did not want to be executed. He did not want to be a martyr. Not when he writes his very last epistle and he's praying to be released as a favor to Philemon. And we'll see that Paul hoped that that would be a favor extended to all of the Christian assemblies. Because Paul thought that he could serve, he could do better 
not being a martyr and serving the Christian assemblies than he would by being a martyr. So Paul did not want to be a martyr. And just a little earlier, just a little earlier than the writing of Philemon. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul had written, For me to live anointed and to die is gain. For me to live anointed, for me to be one of the people of Christ. But if to live in flesh, this for me a fruit of labor, then I know not which I prefer. I am afflicted by the two, having the desire for which to depart, or to die, and to be with Christ, very much the better, very much the better for Paul. If he was a narcissist, he would have wanted to die, to be relieved from his labors, and to be with Christ. But to continue in the flesh is of more necessity for your sake. Paul didn't want to be in paradise. Paul wanted to continue his labors in the flesh for the sake of his people. Denying himself, denying his own, postponing his own heavenly reward so that he could continue laboring for his people. He did not want to be a martyr. But to continue in the flesh is of more necessity for your sake. Of course, a narcissist could never understand that. And persuaded of this, I know that, I know that, expressing confidence, I know that I shall abide and remain with you all for your advancement and joy of the faith, that your boast may be abundant in Christ Yahshua in respect of me, because of my presence again with you. So in spite of Paul's dismal statement here in 2 Timothy, in 2 Timothy, that the time of his departure is approaching, where he clearly refers to his imminent execution, in the epistle to the Philippians, written at a later time and after Timothy joins him, he expresses doubt as to whether he would be executed or be released so that he may join the Philippians. Expressing that doubt, he then expresses the preference that he would rather be released so that he could be with them for their sakes. This is also an expression of self-denial for the benefit of the community. Since he also stated that his personal preference was to be with Christ. Then, in the epistle to Philemon, written at an even later time, he is somehow confident that he would be released, even asking Philemon to prepare a place for him to stay. However, that never happened, and that is the last which we ever heard from Paul of Tarsus. Paul became a martyr, but he really did not want to be a martyr. His last expressions in this regard showed that he had the desire to continue on so that he may continue serving the body of Christ. Only a narcissist would pervert that and 
claim that Paul wanted to be a martyr to make their own law of attraction seem biblical or Christian when it's really just Jewish Kabbalistic bullshit. Paul did not think on their terms. Paul truly followed Christ, denied his own best interests, and sought the best interests of his people. Now, continuing with his solemn remarks in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Hereafter, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. Why? Because, as Paul said, having struggled the good struggle, I finished the race, I kept the faith. He never denied his God. He never sought for that happy vibration of the God within. Hereafter, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me, which the prince will render to me in that day, the righteous judge, and not only to me, but also to all those loving his manifestation, to all those who are really watching for Christ from heaven, and not watching for that happy vibration Christ within you, that Jewish hippie Christ. Paul sincerely believed that all of those who accepted the gospel of Christ and strove to apply it in their daily lives would indeed be rewarded at the manifestation of Christ in his kingdom. As he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be a partaker thereof with you. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receives the prize. So you run that you may obtain. And every man that strives for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it. Speaking of runners in an earthly race, in a worldly race, speaking of actual runners. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beats the air, but I keep under, I keep my body under my spirit is what he ostensibly means. I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means what I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Because your imagination just didn't come true. So we may obtain the incorruptible crown by keeping the commandments of Christ by subjecting our bodies to the laws of our God. Similarly, the Apostle James had said, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Peter spoke likewise to the elders of the Christian assemblies and exhorted them to feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, 
not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. In the message to the assembly at Smyrna, the angel of the revelation was instructed to inform them on behalf of Christ, to fear none of those things which you shall suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. As we had said in our recent discussion of Second Timothy chapter 3, for Christians this is the real law of attraction, that when they do good in the eyes of God, the world will consider them evil and persecute them. There's no other law of attraction that applies to Christians. The truly spiritual man, the truly spiritual man, not the man who seeks good vibrations, the truly spiritual man seeks to walk in the laws of Yahweh his God. Because, as Paul had said in Romans chapter 7, the law is spiritual. Walking by the word of God, that man seeks to do good works which result not in earthly riches, but in treasures stored up in heaven. A truly spiritual man does not operate by his own feelings. Good vibrations. I've gotten good vibrations in a barroom. Good vibrations can come even as a result of lust or some other sensual euphoria, which is not good, but which is actually sinful instead. It might feel good. Sin always feels good. As it is written in Jeremiah, the prophet's prophecy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither have I commanded them, neither spoke unto them. They prophesy unto you a false vision and divination and a thing of naught and a deceit of their heart. The man who seeks true wisdom won't seek it from the Kabbalah or from the esoteric writings of New Agers, pagans and Jews. Rather, he will seek it from the law of God as we read in Proverbs chapter 4. Hear, ye children, the instruction of a father, and attend to no understanding. For I give you good doctrine, forsake ye not my law. For I was my father's son, tender and only beloved in the sight of my mother. He taught me also, and he said unto me, Let thine heart retain my words, keep my commandments, and live. Get wisdom, get understanding, forget it not, neither decline from the words of my mouth, forsake her not, and she, meaning wisdom, she shall preserve thee, love her, and she shall keep thee. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. Exalt her, and she shall promote thee, she shall bring thee to honor, when thou dost embrace her. She shall give to thine head an ornament of grace, 
A crown of glory shall she deliver to thee. True wisdom, true knowledge, true spirituality. They are found in the facts of scripture and not in your own feelings. Believing that at any time he is about to meet his end, Paul now exhorts Timothy to more immediate matters. You must be eager to come to me quickly. For Damas has left me behind, loving this present age. He has gone to Thessalonica, Crescas to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Lucas alone is with me, taking Mark. Taking Mark, bring him with yourself, for he is useful to me for the ministry. Mark or Marcus. It's usually... Marcus, it's always Marcus in Greek. It's usually Marcus in the King James Version. Sometimes it's Mark. They did it both ways. Just like sometimes they wrote Timothy and sometimes they wrote Timotheus. Where we have Cresces to Galatia, certain, manus- certain manuscripts, the Codices Sinaiticus and Ephraimisiri have Gaul or in Greek Galia. Now, Galia can also be Galatia. Galia is actually the Romanized form of the word that we know as Gaul. Gaul and Galatia are really from the same origin. They both refer to the ancient Germanic Galatahi, which were called the Galatahi from the 5th century BC, but before that, They were called Scythians, or Sake. The word Germania was a first century Roman invention, so that they could distinguish the tribes east of the Rhine, which they considered authentic Galatahi, so that they could distinguish them as Germans, as opposed to the Galatahi of Gaul, roughly equivalent to modern France, who had become mixed with peoples that dwelled there before. However, it can be established that most of those peoples that dwelled there before were actually early Phoenician settlers, some Greek settlers, and other Japhethite tribes. For Damas has left me behind, loving this present age. He has gone to Thessalonica, Cresces to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Lucas alone is with me, or Luke, Lucas, Luke. Taking Mark, bring him with yourself, for he is useful to me for the ministry. We will never tell how quickly Timothy was able to come to Paul in Rome or exactly when during Paul's two years in Rome, as we know from Acts chapter 28, verse 31, that each of his last epistles were written. Neither can we tell how long it was after his first trial until he was finally executed. But as we have demonstrated, we can tell the general order of the writing of the epistles that Paul wrote while he was in Rome. And we can also know that 
we can know when they were written in relation to his trial before Caesar. So from this point, there is little space in Paul's life for Timothy's coming to him in Rome. For the returns of Tychicus and Damas to Rome, and for the writing of the epistles to the Ephesians, Laodiceans, Colossians, and Philemon. There is still space in Paul's life for all of that from this point. But whether this was several weeks or even many months, we will never know. So Paul writes, sometime during his two years, as Luke tells us in Acts chapter 28, sometime during that two years, Paul writes the Ephesians. And then he writes... Second Timothy. And we know all this from the internal evidence in these epistles. And after he writes Second Timothy, there is no record of Paul's activity until Timothy appears in Rome. And that's when Paul writes these other epistles. First Philippians, and then Colossians and Philemon, with Laodiceans in there somewhere, because Laodiceans was sent off with Tychicus when he delivered the epistle to the Colossians. And we know that from the text of Colossians. So how long it was between Paul's arrival in Rome and then the writing of Ephesians and the writing of 2 Timothy and then the writing of these other epistles and then the end of his two years and his execution, we don't know. But we do know the order of the epistles and we could tell a little bit about the interaction of these other men with Paul from the epistles themselves. That's all we do know. Now this Mark, this Marcus mentioned here, must be the same Mark over whom Paul and Barnabas had split many years before. Reading the epistles to the Colossians and to Philemon, Colossians 4.10, chapter 4, verse 10, and Philemon verse 24 which were the last of Paul's epistles and which were written after Timothy obeyed this request and joined Paul in Rome we see that Timothy did bring Mark with him as Mark is mentioned in the salutations of each of those epistles the connection to the mark of Paul's earlier dispute with Barnabas is fully evident in Colossians where Paul called this same Mark the sister's son to Barnabas. So we see that Paul and Mark had indeed been reconciled at some point during Paul's ministry because he now considers him to be a useful man, useful to the ministry. But earlier on, when he split with Barnabas, Paul considered Mark to be pretty useless and to have little faith. Paul had little faith in him. And that's why he split with Barnabas, because he didn't want to bring Mark along with them. Then later, after Paul seems to have passed from this life, Mark is found with Peter in Babylon, as that apostle writes his epistles, to the assemblies of Paul's ministry throughout Anatolia. Yes, if you pay real close attention 
to 1 Peter, to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is actually writing to the assemblies of Paul's ministry. So, I can conjecture that Paul by that time is probably dead, that Peter is writing those assemblies after Paul's passing, and that Peter is, in, is encouraging them. So in Second Peter, Peter tells those same assemblies, because that's the second epistle that he wrote to them, he tells those same assemblies that Paul was difficult to understand, but they certainly should heed his writings. And Mark is mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5. Some some time ago, when we pre- 2011 I believe, when we presented a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, we explained the belief among early Christian writers, and I think I quoted three or four of them at least, that Mark had actually recorded the Gospel as it was told him by Peter since he himself was not one of the original twelve. Mark first appeared in scripture in the book of Acts in chapter 12. There Peter went to his home in Jerusalem after he was miraculously freed from prison by an angel of Yahweh. Now I should I should really say that Mark first appeared by name in scripture at that time. He may have been amongst the other disciples of Christ at an earlier time, but he's not mentioned by name, so we really don't know that. The Damis mentioned here. Damis has left me behind, loving this present age. He has gone to Thessalonica. The Damis mentioned here seems to have repented and to have been reconciled to Paul as he is also mentioned later in the epistles both to the Colossians and Philemon. Colossians 4.14 and Philemon verse 24. This Cresces or Crescens here in the King James English is otherwise unknown but seems to have been sent by Paul on a mission to Galatia. That Titus was sent to Dalmatia would help to establish that he was not stationed by Paul permanently in Crete, as the later Roman Catholics had wrongly supposed, and they still suppose. We establish that in other ways in our commentary on the epistle to Titus given here last year. Dalmatia was a province which was made when Illyricum was split into two separate provinces sometime around 9 A.D., it was the larger, larger coastal portion, as opposed to Pannonia, which was the portion that ran along the Danube River. In his epistle to the Romans, Paul attested that he had preached the gospel in Illyricum, something which was not recorded in the book of Acts. We may speculate that these men were sent to these places with now lost epistles, as Paul probably wrote many more epistles during his 30-year ministry than what we now have. As we have also elucidated, Luke apparently remained with Paul throughout all the time 
that he came from Philippi and joined Paul in the Troad, described in Acts chapter 20, all the way through to the end of his life, which is suggested in the closing verses of Acts chapter 28. Luke was not always with Paul before then. He was only with Paul intermittently before then, between Acts chapter 15 or the end of Paul, the end of Acts chapter 14 when Paul is in Antioch, through the end of Acts chapter 19, actually only through the end of Acts chapter 16 when Paul is in, um, when Paul's in jail with Silas in Philippi and they're released from jail and he leaves with Silas, he leaves Luke behind and Luke is hardly with him until he meets Paul in a Troad, described in Acts chapter 20. But here we cannot understand why Paul had said that only Luke is with me, disregarding the presence of Aristarchus. For Aristarchus had been with Paul since the apostles convened in the Troad in Acts chapter 20. and was ostensibly arrested with him, and was sent to Rome with him, as Luke mentioned in Acts chapter 27, verse 2. Later, when Paul wrote the epistles to the Colossians and to Philemon, Aristarchus is mentioned as being in his company once again, and is still described as his fellow prisoner. So we can only guess why he may not have been with Paul here as he wrote Second Timothy, or why, if he was with Paul, that Paul did not take him into account here. We will venture to say that Aristarchus was on trial with Paul, because Aristarchus was a Macedonian, so he also would have been a Roman citizen who had the ability to appeal to Caesar, who couldn't be tried by the Judeans, like Paul couldn't be tried by the Judeans, so long as he appealed to Caesar. So we will venture to say that Aristarchus was on trial with Paul, and here, where Paul omitted him, he was only meaning to describe the deeds of his voluntary companions. Aristarchus, his fellow prisoner, was not a voluntary companion. So Paul continues to inform Timothy of the state of his companions, and he says, Now I have sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And when you read the epistle to the Ephesians, you figure out why. Because Tychicus delivered that epistle to the Ephesians, which Paul had also written from Rome. So the epistle to the Ephesians must have been written shortly before Second Timothy. Later, when Paul writes the epistles to the Colossians and to Philemon, Tychicus also delivered them. And we learn that in Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. So he must have returned from Ephesus to Paul in Rome by the time those epistles were written. 
and Timothy was there also. Now Paul gives Timothy an instruction. Coming, bring the cloak which I left behind in the Troad with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. And in my opinion, this passage reveals the fact that Timothy could not have been in Ephesus when Paul wrote this epistle. And if he were, Paul may have written, I have sent Tychicus to you in Ephesus, or something similar. But wherever Timothy may have been, Paul expected him to be able to pass through the Troad and route to Rome. Ephesus was a major port city of its own, far south of the Troad, and if Timothy was in Ephesus, a journey to the Troad in a direction away from Rome would have inconvenienced him. So where Paul said here, you must be eager to come to me quickly, he would have spoken contrary to his own desires by sending Timothy out of his way from Ephesus to the Troad. Rather, Timothy must have been somewhere else, and wherever he may have been, the Troad was probably a convenient stop for him on his way to Rome. Here we also see that books are an important component in Paul's ministry, even though they are little mentioned throughout his epistles and the accounts in the book of Acts. But reading Paul's many epistles, we imagine that he must have had copies of all the scriptures, meaning the writings of the Old Testament, and that he studied and consulted them often just as he admonished earlier here that all writing inspired of God is also beneficial for teaching, for evidence, for correction, for education which is in righteousness, that the man of Yahweh would be perfect, having prepared himself for all good works. Evidently, men are not perfected by feelings, by vibrations, or by their own imaginations. Rather, men are perfected by mastering and putting into practice the facts of God set forth in Scripture. A man of faith is useless without the guidance of the Word of God, since faith then becomes relative and may describe any belief at all. Now Paul warns against another man from his past. Alexandros the coppersmith exhibited much evil to me. The prince shall render to him according to his works. Him you must also watch, for very much does he stand against our words. There are men who want to be legends and end up being demonized demonizing themselves. There are other men who don't want to be legends, but who become legends because of the service they perform for their people. Paul of Tarsus was certainly one of them. There are several men named Alexander who were associated at one time or another with Paul, and it cannot be certain that this particular Alexander can be identified with any of them. At Ephesus, The leader of the pagan opposition to Paul was apparently Demetrius the silversmith. And a Christian Judean named Alexander was among the number of the persecuted 
as we see in Acts chapter 19. Then, not long after departing from Ephesus, Paul wrote his first epistle to Timothy and spoke of how certain men had gone astray and, concerning the faith, had made shipwreck, of whom is Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered unto Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. So it may be imagined that this is that same Alexander of Acts chapter 19, seeing that he was at one time among the faithful, and then he turned away from it. But whether or not this is the same Alexander, he is evidently in active opposition to Paul. Sometimes a man's friends, taking off into narcissism, become his worst enemies. If Paul could not avoid those situations, we should not imagine that we can avoid them. Now Paul reveals that he has already stood before Nero. At my first defense, no one stood by me. (coughs) Excuse me. At my first defense, no one stood by me. Rather, all forsook me. You should not account it to them. Now, Paul had already said that only Luke is with me. And we cannot tell whether Luke was included where Paul said, all forsook me, but somehow we doubt it. Tychicus was clearly sent to Ephesus by Paul. But perhaps, and there is a possibility, Crescas and Titus were not sent on missions. As Paul is not explicit where he informs Timothy here that they went to Galatia and Dalmatia. Perhaps they were faint of heart and left for those places in order to avoid standing by Paul. These things we may never know, and we can only draw possibilities from our own assumptions. We can only speculate. But perhaps Paul is referring to others of his companions, excluding these men, whom he explicitly mentions. And that we would rather believe. As he had said earlier in this epistle, This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me. Now Paul offers edification. But the prince stood by me and strengthened me, in order that through me the proclamation would be fully assured, and all the nations should hear. I have even been delivered from the mouth of a lion. As Paul attests, the prince, or Christ himself, never forsakes those who love him and keep his word. Throughout his ministry, Paul of Tarsus was clearly aware of his original commission, as Joshua Christ had stated it to Hananias, which is recorded in Acts chapter 9. Go, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name, before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. For I shall indicate to him how much it is necessary for him to suffer on behalf of my name. Again, Paul shows cognizance of this in Acts chapter 22, 
where at the time of his arrest he addresses the Judeans and he attests that Christ had said to him to go because I shall send you off to distant nations. Then he shows such cognizance again where he said to Herod Agrippa II as it is recorded in Acts chapter 27 that now for the hope of the promise, having been made by Yahweh to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest, night and day, hope to attain. Of course, those twelve tribes were off in distant nations. So Paul knew well the scope of his commission, and evidently, he knew it could not be completed until he had made his testimony before Caesar. And he knew this with greater certainty as soon as he was arrested, where we read in Acts chapter 23, in verse 11, And the night following, the night following his arrest, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. He just didn't yet realize how he would bear witness at Rome. Anticipating that he would be released and go to Rome on his own, as he had promised when he wrote the epistle to the Romans shortly before his arrest. Making his defense before Caesar, here Paul may have realized that his commission was completed. However, when he had written his epistle to the Romans, perhaps three years before this, he also expressed a hope that he would go to Spain, a hope which was never fulfilled. Where Paul said here that he had been delivered from the mouth of a lion, we cannot be certain if he meant to refer to an actual lion or to an allegorical lion, such as the type to which the Apostle Peter referred, where he warned that your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Of course, Peter was talking about Jews. This allegorical lion could describe any of Paul's Jewish or even pagan adversaries who would speak against him at any of his trials such as the trials before the Roman governors of Judea, Felix and Festus, or the trial, the earlier trial before Gallio in Corinth, or in reference to what transpired in Ephesus that Paul, that made Paul say in his epistles to the Corinthians that I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. But on the other hand, Paul may be making a reference to an actual lion and to the Roman punishment of Christians, whereby they were thrown to beasts in circuses. While we cannot rule this out entirely, however, the histories do not seem to support this view. First, in the early Christian writers, the trial of Daniel in the lion's den is mentioned in many of the same places where Paul is mentioned but I have found no description of Paul undergoing a similar trial, in spite of his words here in Second Timothy. So there is no early Christian tradition that Paul was actually thrown to the lions, so far as I could find. 
Furthermore, it is doubtful that by this time the Romans had even begun using lions in their punishment of Christians. The following account is from the nearly contemporary Roman historian Tacitus from his Annals of Rome from Book 15, Paragraph 44, which was published in Volume 5 of the Loeb Classical Library edition of Tacitus in 1937. It speaks of the blame for the burning of Rome, which Nero had unjustly placed on Christians in 64 AD, which we believe is a couple of years after Paul's death. It is readily apparent that Tacitus had also accepted all of the Jewish slanders against Christians. And Tacitus wrote, therefore, to scotch the rumor, the rumor that Nero actually set the fire, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices. The Jews were spreading vicious rumors about Christians. Maybe they were calling them drunks. A class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd styled Christians. Christus, maybe those Jews were from Brooklyn, I'm kidding. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilatus, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and find a vogue. First, then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next, on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on account of arson as for hatred of the human race. So we see that first century Roman Christians actually lived by the gospel and rejected the world, the sinful world. And derision accompanied their end. Tacitus telling us what happened to these Christians. They were covered with wild beasts' skins and torn to death by dogs. Or they were fastened on crosses and when daylight failed were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the habit of a charioteer or mounted on his car, meaning his chariot car, not his automobile. Hence, in spite of the guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. And that's the end of our quotation from Tacitus. It is apparent that from the time that the Colosseum, which was officially called the Flavian Amphitheater, from the time that it was opened in 80 AD, 80 AD, I'm sorry, that lions and other beasts were used in place of dogs in such punishments, 
and the Christians were periodically punished in this manner. However, it is unlikely that Paul suffered such a fate. There is no record of lions being employed at this early time. There is no record of Paul suffering this fate in any of the early Christian writings. So rather, our preferred interpretation of this statement is that Paul was vehemently attacked at his first trial, but withstood the attack in a defense which gained him some sort of deferment, so that he was not punished immediately. Whether that deferment was the promise of a second hearing, as Paul refers here to his first defense, implying that there may be a second, or whether only a decision in regard to his guilt or innocence was deferred, is a matter which we cannot fully determine. It is evident, however, that in 61 or 62 AD, Christians in Rome were not being persecuted with the same zeal by which Nero persecuted them after the fire in 64 AD. So we believe that Paul's lion was an allegorical lion, perhaps some Italian Jewish prosecutor, or some Jew from Brooklyn posing as an Italian. Paul continues with his encouragement in verse 18. The prince will deliver me from all wicked deeds and save me for his kingdom in the heavens, to whom is honor for the eternal ages, truly. Paul was absolutely confident in the promises of eternal life in Scripture, as we have already seen that he had also expressed later on in the first chapter of his epistle to the Philippians, that for me to live anointed, meaning to be of the anointed people, and to die is gain. But if to live in flesh, this for me a fruit of labor, then I know not which I prefer. I am afflicted by the two having the desire for which to depart and to be with Christ very much the better. But to continue in the flesh is of more necessity for your sake. Paul was absolutely confident in the promises of eternal life in Scripture, knowing that if he died, he would be with Christ. Other men, not so confident in the facts of Scripture, resort to their own imaginations and being narcissists, they esteem for themselves to be gods. Paul's epistle is complete, and now he offers salutations. Greet Prisca and Aquila, or Aquilus, and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus has stayed in Corinth, and Trophimus I left behind in Miletus, being sick. Prisca is a familiar form of the longer name Priscilla. Priscilla and Aquila had been in Rome when Christians were first persecuted there, and were expelled in the days of Claudius Caesar, sometime around 49 or 50 AD, which we see mentioned in Acts chapter 18, where they are in Corinth when Paul arrives there. They were with Paul in Ephesus when he wrote his first epistle to the Corinthians. 
We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And a year or so later, they were back in Rome when Paul wrote his epistle to the Romans. And we know that from Romans chapter 16, verse 3. Now, it is obvious that they are not in Rome several years later, as Paul writes the second epistle to Timothy. But they are somewhere that Timothy may greet them, wherever that is, because I don't believe it was in Ephesus. Now, earlier, in chapter 1 of this epistle, Paul had said that Onesiphorus had done him some service in Ephesus, but that does not mean that he was an Ephesian or that his house was in Ephesus. But evidently, his house may also be, or had been, wherever Timothy was. And as Timothy was also expected to bring Paul's greetings there, or to be able to bring to bring Paul's greetings there. We have already given our reasons why we, we believe that Timothy is somewhere other than Ephesus, and here we also see that it is unlikely that he is in either Miletus or in Corinth. Trophimus was mentioned in a historical sense in Acts chapter 21. And he was among Paul's companions who had convened in the Troad to travel to Jerusalem with him. As it is recorded in the early verses of Acts chapter 20. Paul and his group stopped at Miletus as they departed from the Troad and traveled to Jerusalem, where Paul and evidently several others of the group were arrested. Now, when Paul was arrested in Acts chapter 21, it is said in the book of Acts that the Judeans had seen Trophimus with Paul in Jerusalem in times past, and supposed that Paul had brought him to the temple. And one of the problems with understanding the book of Acts is this. The book of Acts is written very concisely, and the accounts are very sparse, only scattered accounts, which transpired over a 30-year period, from the time of the crucifixion of Christ, sometime in 33 AD, to the time of the death of Paul, or the end of Paul's two years in Rome, which must have been 61 or 62 AD. So we have a 28 or 29 year period. And we have these accounts, which Luke compiled into a book called the Book of Acts. But Paul made many more voyages, made many more excursions, made many more epistles stopped in many more assemblies that are not recorded in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not a complete account by any means, and Luke spent very little of the actual time in perhaps 12 or 13 years between Acts chapter 15 and Acts chapter 28. He spent he actually spent very little of that time with Paul, probably not even a third of it. But Paul probably made many trips for feasts back to Jerusalem 
especially during his three years in Ephesus, than what are, than what is recorded in the Book of Acts. So Paul must have left Trophimus behind in Miletus when Paul stopped there after his group left the Troad and were on their way to Jerusalem. And Timothy was also with Paul on that journey. While Paul was in Ephesus, he had sent Erastus with Timothy to Macedonia. Just before the trouble with the silversmiths broke out, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 19. Then, later, after Timothy came to Paul, to Paul in Nicopolis and accompanied him to the Troad, which we see in Acts chapter 20, we see Erastus is also in their company since that is where the epistle to the Romans is written, and Erastus is mentioned in the salutation of that epistle in Romans chapter 16, verse 23. In our commentary on Romans chapter 16, we speculated that Erastus may have been one of the Asiarchs in Ephesus who were favorable to Paul, and therefore he may have had problems of his own at Ephesus from that time. But we do not know when Erastus went to Corinth, as he was in the Troad with Paul when he is last mentioned. Timothy must have known that Trophimus was left in Miletus, but not necessarily about the fate of Erastus. However, perhaps Paul mentions both of these men in this fashion, not merely to inform Timothy, but also to leave a general record that he had not seen these men since his last departure from them, whether Timothy was aware of that or not. Now Paul exhorts Timothy to come to him once more, and adds a greater sense of urgency, saying, You must hurry to come before winter. Before winter. It is evident from secular Roman writings that the months of January and February are referred to. And during these months, travel was difficult, especially travel by sea. In Acts chapter 27, we see that the ship upon which Paul was to be brought to Rome had sought a port in which its passengers and crew could spend the winter before completing its journey. Now Paul mentions some of those who were with him whom he was evidently also not considering, where he had earlier written that only Luke is with me, and at my first defense no one stood by me, rather all forsook me. So by those earlier statements, it seems that he must have been referring not to all of his companions, but to a particular class of companions not to all of his companions in general. So Paul continues his salutation. Eubulus and Pudus or Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren greet you. Eubulus is only mentioned here in scripture so we cannot determine anything more about him than what we see here that he is with Paul in his last days. 
In Romans chapter 16, we see in part of Paul's salutation there a, a request to salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Now here we see a reference to Pudens and Linus and Claudia, who are with him in Rome as he writes this epistle to Timothy. Pudens was the name of a Roman political family, and Rufus, which means red or red-haired, was a name, was a given name found among members of that family. Therefore, this Pudens has been connected with the Rufus mentioned in the epistle to the Romans, and the connection is certainly appropriate, we would insist. A Pudens in Rome just doesn't pop up by accident, being a noted Roman political family. On September 12th of 2014, when we had made our presentation of Romans chapter 16, we expressed the hope that we could address these individuals even further than we had there, but that will have to wait for another occasion. So the following is a bridge from our commentary on Romans chapter 16, verse 13. And I will try to make it short. There have been a lot of studied commentaries and also a lot of hyperbole associating Rufus with the Pudens family and also associating Linus and Claudia with the family of a British king. There has also been a lot of criticism, some of it good and most of it bad, in reference to those commentaries. The hyperbole, especially the hyperbole of George Joad, who was a clown, the hyperbole does not help the cause of manifesting the truth. But the dishonesty of some of the critics is far worse. We are not going to give a full commentary on this topic here, but only a summary of what we believe can be established. However, let us state that the identification of Claudia and Linus with Britons and with Rufus, with Pudens, and therefore a noted Roman political family, first appears in known modern literature in the 16th century in Britain. Rufus is indeed a reference to one Rufus Pudens. In Romans chapter 16, Paul also connects himself to Rufus Pudens. Paul connects himself to Rufus Pudens by greeting his mother and mine. Was Paul a relation through his own mother by marriage, or even by blood, to Rufus Pudens? There is a possibility but any extrapolation on what is seen here is only conjecture, and more information is needed to reach any conclusion. Paul of Tarsus was of a notable family of Pharisees, who were also Roman citizens, being in Calicia. There is evidence in Acts chapter 13, which is somewhat circumstantial, but which cannot be ignored, that he may have been related to Sergius Paulus, the Roman proconsul of Cyprus. They certainly had the same surname, and they were already acquainted. You just don't 
hop on an island and get to see the Roman proconsul. You had to already be acquainted in order to even hope to get an audience with the the equivalent of a governor of a state. Now, if this is a possibility, then there is a possibility that Paul's family had connections with the Roman political class. That would also help to explain his advancement in Judea at such a young age prior to his conversion to Christ. The possibility exists to connect one Rufus Pudens to Aulus Pudens, a Roman centurion who served in Britain, not to the Roman general Aulus Plautius, as some people try to connect him. That's another confused misconception. But Aulus Pudens is a different figure. And Aulus Pudens is known to have served in the armies which defeated the famed British general and king known to the Romans as Caractacus or Caradoc. But his legion also had another British king as an ally. The British traitor, narcissist, and covetous king of Chichester, known to the Romans as Tiberius Claudius Cogidubnus, since he took the name of the emperor Tiberius as his benefactor. Pudens is connected to Cogidubnus in a Roman inscription which was found in Chichester. If Rufus is not Aulus, the two may have been closely related. This leads us to Claudia, and Rufus probably is not Aulus, but they probably were closely related. This woman was with all certainty a Breton, and a woman who later married Rufus Pudens. We must say later, because if they were married when Paul wrote Second Timothy, he could not have inserted the name of Linus between the names of Claudia and Pudens. It is often asserted that Claudia was the daughter of Caractacus, and while the evidence is circumstantial, this cannot be ruled out entirely. However, there is even better circumstantial evidence which suggests that Claudia may have been the daughter of Cogidubnus, the British trader. Without doubt, Claudia was a woman of note who was also a Breton, but the daughter of which British king cannot be said with absolute certainty. Other British kings, hostages, and captives had also moved to Rome, and Claudia may have her roots elsewhere in Britain. However, for some reason, her name was changed to the family name of Claudius Caesar, and in Rome that could not be done casually. You weren't just like a nigger taking your master's name because you didn't have a name. You had to have a good occasion to take the name of a, of a king or a Caesar, or any noted Roman family. So for that reason, the identification of Claudia with Cogidubnus is not a mere fantasy, because we see that Cogidubnus also did basically the same thing. He took the name of the Roman Caesar. Here we shall 
omit from our Roman chapter 16 presentation the refutation of the claim that this Claudia was originally originally Pomponia Grecina, another historical figure. That is an absolute error, and George Jowett made it, and it basically makes him a clown, but that's okay. What is certain is that there was an esteemed British woman named Claudia who married an esteemed Roman named Rufus Pudens, and this is known from the epigrams of Marshall, the Roman poet. Marshall came to Rome from Iberia about 64 A.D., maybe two years after Paul wrote this, maybe three, and had many notable Romans as friends and patrons. Evidently, Rufus Pudens was one of his friends. Marshall, most famous for his hundreds of epigrams, wrote two which mention Claudia and calls her in one a foreigner and in another a Breton. While these books of Marshall's epigrams were not published until about 88 AD, that does not mean that so many hundreds of epigrams were not written until 88 AD. And that is a mistake that many critics like to make when disputing the possible connection of the characters in Marshall's epigrams in books 4 and 11 to the Rufus, Pudens, and Claudia of Paul's epistles. We would assert that Paul mentions Claudia and Pudens in this epistle to Timothy, written about 61 AD, and the pair are not yet married. And here again, we shall shorten our original citations from Marshall. But in Marshall's epigrams, in Book 4, Number 13, from the Loeb Classical Library translation by Walter Kerr, we read, Claudia Peregrina weds Rufus with my own pudence a blessing. O Hymenaeus, be upon thy torches. Hymenaeus, the god of virginity, the hymen, right? Marshall, being a pagan, filled his poetry with many pagan references. But for my own part, I would have translated that first line quite differently, recognizing a play on words that I don't think that Walter Kerr, with all his degrees, had recognized. And I would translate it as Claudia, O Rufus? Like, really? Claudia, O Rufus? A foreigner weds my own pudens? So Marshall is expressing dismay that his friend Rufus Pudens would marry a foreigner. This rendering observes that the name Rufus appears in the masculine of the vocative case and is therefore an address to Pudens himself. Claudia, O Rufus, like, really? A foreigner weds my own Pudens? And also that the word Peregrina has a double meaning as a name for Claudia, since she was a Breton, and also employed in the literal sense here, because the word means foreigner. The line embodies surprise that Pudens would marry a foreigner. And I think that Walter Kerr absolutely missed the real meaning of Marshall's Latin, which I could read a little of. I'm not an expert, admittedly. 
From Marshall's Epigrams from Book 11, Chapter 53, from the same edition, Though Claudia Rufina has sprung from the woad-stained Britons, how she possesses the feelings of the Latin race, not meaning South Americans, but meaning white Romans. In spite of the criticism, it is very plausible that these epigrams were written as early as the mid-to-late 60s AD and published later. It is common for a poet who has collected and published volumes to publish poems written over a long period of time in any particular volume. Marshall had over 1,500 epigrams and had very likely written and collected some of them for years before their publication. We may, therefore, identify Claudia with the British and Rufus with Pudens and the future husband of Claudia, mentioned here by Paul of Tarsus. Now, the British Israel commentators who wrote on these connections at length, and who made many unnecessary and sometimes even ludicrous elaborations, also often insist that Paul had actually stayed at the Palatium Britannicum, the British palace in Rome, during his arrest. There was a British palace in Rome, which was used for diplomatic purposes. Britain was made a Roman province in the days of Claudius Caesar, perhaps as many as 20 years before Paul's time in Rome. However, Luke clearly states that while he was under arrest in Rome, Paul had abode for two whole years in his own hired house. So we see that the British Israel writers were also inaccurate in that aspect of their claims. Finally, the last line of this epistle. The prince is with your spirit. Favor be with you. And rather than favor be with you, the Codex Claromontanus has go in peace. Paul didn't want Timothy to go. He wanted him to come. <laughs> However, as the end of the Novum Testamentum Grece attests in its notes, the text appears to be corrupted. At the end of the verse, the same codex, along with the majority text, had the word Amen, or truly. The codices Sinaiticus, Ephraimisiri, and Alexandrinus do not have the word. So Paul encourages the younger apostle that as Christ was with him in his defense of the gospel, Christ is also with Timothy that he may be strengthened to fulfill his own mission. Here in his last two chapters of Timothy, Paul warned against narcissistic, covetous men who would become traitors against the body of Christ, and exhorts him that against such men you must bring convincing proof, you must censure, you must exhort with all forbearance and instruction. This we believe we have also done here, as our presentation of these two chapters has come at a time when we ourselves must censure narcissistic and covetous men among our own friends, or former friends. If they turn away from us now, it is only because they themselves are not true lovers of Christ. So they too must be turned over to Satan so that they learn not to blaspheme. 
This concludes our effort to present a comprehensive Christian identity commentary on the epistles of Paul. An endeavor which has taken nearly four years. Of course, we did other things also. We pray that it's found to be true and accurate, and even worth preserving. We also pray that over time we can improve on it, and hope to offer it in book form over the coming months. This concludes our presentations on the epistles of Paul of Tarsus. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.